So I'm going to talk about the fear that saves. I've been talking about fear from a lot of different angles. But particularly, I want to look at this uh, remarkable exchange that occurs when Jesus is dying on the cross with the man that we've come to know as the thief on the cross, in his case, the penitent thief, the repentant thief. Uh, And we'll just jump right in, Luke 23, verses 32 and 33. We'll move through this passage. It says that there were also two others who were criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Now, when it comes to the crucifixion and the resurrection, you know, it's, it's important and helpful to uh, remember that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four accounts of the life of Christ, all have different pieces that they choose to expose. And sometimes they overlap. In fact, a lot of them do. But then there are other times where some of the, 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 the Gospels will focus on one piece more than another. Luke has a unique way of approaching it. He focuses on a couple of key things. One of them is going to be what we're going to look at here. But again, the picture in our mind is as we're moving back behind the resurrection to the moment of the cross, I think it's really helpful for us to just be aware of this kind of iconic imagery of the three crosses and where it comes from. You know, whenever you see a picture, sometimes you'll see three crosses. Of course, it's the, the cross in the center always is Jesus, but the two the two other crosses are connected to this idea of the two thieves that were crucified with Jesus on what was for them uh, Golgotha or the, the place of the skull. Uh, it was the part of the, the outskirts of Jerusalem where men usually were led, criminals, were led to be executed. So it was an executioner's hill. And as such, it was an awful place. It was a brutal place. It's exactly where Jesus was being led. He was being moved to the streets. Now remember, just in our mind's eye, it's very important to understand that as Jesus is making his way through the streets, he's, he's faltering on the way to the cross. There's all the abuse that he's taking from a variety of people as he's walking through the streets. He's a bloody mess. It's, it's, it's no exaggeration to suggest that Jesus is just uh, horrendously disfigured. He's been punched and brutalized by the Romans. His back's been shredded. Um, they played with him, if you recall, and spun him around, talked to him, hit him, and then said, prophesy which one did it. They, they said, you think you're a king? And they took a thorn bush, and they wrapped it as best as they could into a crown, and then they pressed it down on his head. And he's just a mess. He's, he's, he's a bloody mess as he's making his way through the streets. And then he's crucified up there on the cross. And on the cross, he's got the two thieves, one to his left and one to his right, And then we're told here that Jesus said this. He said, Father, uh, forgive them. Uh, This is one of the the seven sayings, seven recorded sayings that Jesus, Luke, highlights. He says, Jesus, pray for them. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And then they divided his garments and they cast lots. Now, this is a phrase uh, I had. Actually, it was interesting. Someone came up to me after service last night, and they said, you know, when you're reading through that passage, there was... Uh, one phrase, I, I didn't really understand what's going on there. And, and they said, what did it mean? They divided his garments and cast lots. And I realized that that was actually terminology that wasn't necessarily understood right away. You know, what was happening in that moment was that the Roman soldiers who had hammered up Jesus and who were now watching him die um, were doing something that they had done probably countless times before. You know, they were men accustomed to... to Violence and unspeakable evil. Their hearts were clearly callous. There was nothing about it that disturbed them. Uh, They were busy uh, gambling is what they were essentially doing. Jesus had one piece of garment that had value. It's what sometimes in tradition they called the robe, but it was his cloak. 
It happened to be a seamless cloak, which made it a little bit more valuable, and to be ripped apart would have taken away its value. So instead of divvying it up, they decided that they would gamble to see who could win it and have it and sell it. And so this is happening while Jesus is dying. They are gambling at his feet for his very clothes. It was absolutely callous indifference. On top of that, we're told here that as they did that, it says that there were people who were standing by and they were looking on. And many of them had different emotions, we may assume, probably some of them joining in, yelling at him. But it says even the rulers with them sneered. They sneered. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ, the chosen of God, the soldiers also, they mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine. Uh, and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was an inscription also that was written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. And that, that inscription was probably a piece of wood. It was hammered up on top of Jesus' cross, and it had been put there by Pontius Pilate under his orders as an insult and a mockery. It was designed to irritate, irritate the leaders of Jerusalem who had, according to Pilate's perspective, pushed him into a corner over the issue of Jesus. And so in response and retaliation, he had hammered over this dead, pathetic, naked, dying man, so-called Messiah, these, these words. Here he is, the king of the Jews. And he had it written in three languages, Hebrew, the language of the people of, of Jerusalem, uh, Greek, the common language, the English of their day, and then Latin, the official language of Rome. He wanted everybody to hear it. You remember, now part of what had happened there is Pilate had been very unsure about what to do with Jesus. His first inclination after having a brief interaction with him was to set him free. He didn't believe he was was guilty of anything. In fact, there were moments where they're talking with one another where it's clear when you look at the book of John uh, in that exchange that occurs with Pilate that it's almost like Pilate's the one who's on trial as Jesus peers into him. Pilate doesn't really want to push forward, but Pilate is also a man who is consumed with his career, and he has a, a very good sense of that Rome has given him one great assignment, keep the peace, and to allow a riot, a disturbance, that could cost him his job, his career, his future. He can't risk it. They all know that. So the, the leaders are saying, we want him put to death, and he, and he tries to appease everybody. What he does, he says, well, what we're going to do is we're not going to have him put to death, but we're going to have him beaten. And so that's when they, he gives them over to the Roman guards, and that's when all of Jesus' you know, sort of physical abuse takes place. And then they pull Jesus back out in front of the crowd. Remember how it goes? And, and Pilate says, here he is. Behold the man. You know, Look at him. He's no threat. Jesus is standing there. He's stripped down. He's, a, he's got blood down his face. He's beaten up. He's puffed up. And he's there. He's a, he's a sad figure. And then, of course, the word comes out, put him to death, right? And then just the crowd goes into a frenzy. And, and before long, Pilate, Pilate says, you know, what is it? and then they say, look, if you don't do it, then you're rebelling against your own leader, Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. And it was this powerful statement, this exchange, and Pilate agrees to do it. And he says, bring out the water. And he brings out the water. And, and in ceremonially, in front of everybody, he puts his hands in there, and he washes. He says, I am innocent of this man's blood. But he wasn't. He wasn't at all. And Jesus is led out to die. And that's where it intersects with the first verse that we read, Jesus being led out with the criminals to die. But Pilate had decided to have that sign put up. It's like, you boxed me into a corner. You, made, you forced my hand by pushing this thing and, and, and using Caesar, my own, my own manager, my own boss, or my own king against me. You knew what you were doing. Well, I'm going to pay you back. 
guess what? I want this hammered up on top of that cross. Everybody can see, here's your king. That was the picture. All this is going on. Jesus looks like he's just a pawn in the game, a meaningless person caught up in the middle of a giant power play. Everybody's, and, and you know what else? Is, look what it says here. It says that then one of the criminals who was hanged, Luke says it was one of them hanged, he started blaspheming Jesus, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and save us. So do you, do, uh, do you see the picture here? If you just walk through these verses, what do we notice? We just, see, we just see that everybody, and I hope I can convey it properly, in this moment, everybody is at Jesus. Everybody is accusing him. Everybody is mocking him. Everybody's ridiculing him. He is a pathetic, broken man on a, hanging on a cross. And you got, it says the leaders walk up and they say, who, who, who are you? You, you, say, you said you could save others? Why don't you save yourself, right? And they spit on him. And then you have, we're told here, the Roman guards, they decide, ah, yeah, yeah, here's some wine, you know, save yourself now. And then you have, um, and it's, it, it seems like it that the, 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 the two thieves who are dying as well decided that they were also just going to join in. And, they, and at least the one, is, we're told here, he starts saying, yeah, why don't you save us? You, you say you're Messiah. So this is all going on, right? What's interesting is, is as this frenzy is taking place, and it's kind of like the dogs are gathering before him. Everybody's around him. Nobody's with him. Everything's against him. It's the worst of the humanity. It's a collective expression of evil. If he is the beautiful one, then there was no greater crime than what was done here collectively by the human race in this moment. And it explains, at least in part, the potential for absolute depravity that exists and is a historical reality in the human experience. We say, how can that happen? How can people do that to people? It was done to the innocent one, and it was done by an expression across the board, upper class, middle class, lower class, Jew, Gentile, they all joined in. Everybody was in on it. The criminals themselves joining in on it. In fact, we're told in Matthew, Matthew's account gives us one nuance, one detail. It says this in Matthew 27, 44. Just, we'll just put this up. Look at it, it says. It says that um, even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him, saying the same thing. You know, here, do you know what this tells us? It wasn't just one of the thieves. It wasn't just the, the uh, thief that we, let's just say the, the, the bad thief, <laughs> all right? It was both of them. In that moment, both of them decided to join in and say, and, and you saw what they said, yeah, if you're the Christ, why don't you save yourself, right? And, then, and we can imagine that there were other things said as well. Because we're told, and I remember how I first heard this verse. My first word as a boy, I remember reading it from a, a older, the older version, um, the older King James version, and there was a phrase in it that always stuck with me, right? And it said this, the thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in their teeth. I thought, what does that mean? What are they saying? It, it's like this, this vile, you know, I see it just this, the, the anger, the venom coming out, the spit and the venom at Jesus, the, the hatred, just right there. They just join in. You, you say you're Messiah, save yourself. You know, it's just a power, save us all. It was, it, was, it was just this collective expression of intense emotion shot right at Everybody's against him. That's the picture. I want us to see it. Everybody's against him. Everybody's coming at him. Everybody's ridiculing him, laughing in the scorn, sneering at him. It's an ugly, hostile scene, hurling their insults, 
spewing out things, both, not just one. And, and here's the thing. Why would that surprise anybody? It, for him to be in the place that he was, and he's going to admit later on that he was guilty of what he, has being, what he is being crucified for. But that thief probably, he had always probably joined in anyway. That's probably a part of the reason he even got himself in the mess that he was in. He probably had a pattern of going along with it. And this was no different. Here in his dying hour, why not just join in and, and, and throw his anger in with everybody else's and go after this guy in the middle with the sign on top who claims to be Messiah. That's the picture we're given. And yet, if I could put it this way, somewhere between verses 39 and 40, somewhere in the gap between what we just read, look at this, and what comes next, something happened. Something happens inside. Something begins to stir in his heart. The one, clearly, the one thief starts to, he starts to get bothered by what's happening. And something about Jesus is affecting him. And we've, we've, we, people have speculated, well, what was it? Was it because, was it because they maybe... He heard Jesus um, as he was praying for his enemies, and it, it, like, caught him off guard. Others said, no, it, was just, it had to be something about just the way Jesus was. Others said, no, no, it was connected to the sign that was on top. When he started thinking about it, could it be that he is the king? And then other people were saying, you say you're Messiah, and he started to put it all together. We don't know. What we know is this. Something in him started to turn to thinking of Jesus in a different way. And something broke. I would call it like a seed. Gosh, it, 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 some, something hit him. And, and, and remember, he had been jumping in with everybody else, but some seed got into him. Uh, maybe a, a, think of it like a, a, flat, a fracture of light. I mean, something, something of the Lord, a, a, a gleam, a, a, you know, some type of a, of a touch of the Lord just hit him. And there was something about it that his heart starts to get, get softened. And here, in the most unlikely scenario, but he's, he's being affected by Jesus. Something between when he's railing and joining in and spewing out anger with everybody else and, and then watching Jesus in some amount of time, something starts to happen inside of him. And, in, and he doesn't probably know what it is. Not unlike what has happened sometimes in some of our own hearts. And it's hard to explain it, but something came alive. Something came alive. A word, a touch, a glance, something. Something hit. And, and we're told that he's, he's probably pondering this. We don't know how much time passes. But something happens. And it tips him over the edge. His friend, his partner in crime, his his, his fellow male factors, they called him the, uh, the thief that he had done his deeds with, um, the, he decides to just lay into Jesus one more time. And, and, and he just starts in on Jesus again. And, 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 and he starts railing at Jesus. But this time, he can't take it anymore. And he explodes back at him. Look, at the, look what he says. Look at verse 40. It says here, but the other answering rebuked him saying, do you not even fear God 
seeing that you are under the same condemnation. We're all going to die here. Have you no fear of God? He's talking about a healthy reverence for God. Doesn't it even bother you? Aren't you even thinking about where we're heading? We're in our last minutes. Can you afford to speak to this man like that? And then he says this, I, we are guilty of what we have done, but this man has done nothing wrong. It was, it was an ex- extraordinary statement, a stunning one, because... One, what does he do? He does two things, doesn't he? One, he acknowledges his own guilt. He says, one, we, we, you know it and I know it. We are, we're guilty as anything. We deserve to die. We're dying because we, dare, we earned this. But somewhere between when he started at Jesus and this moment, but he said to him, but you, this man is innocent. And in that moment, you've got to understand, this was, you understand that this was for Jesus? In the context of betrayal, everybody had, everybody had forsaken him. I mean, everybody he had invested in and loved. Some of the women had come back from a distance. John returns eventually, but for the most part, all of his team was gone. His best friends in the world. Judas had betrayed him, literally. Peter, his prime guy, when the heat was on, completely, completely disavowed himself. It was a total break. And in, in betrayals everywhere. Everybody's at him. Everybody's on him. Everybody's yelling at him. And then out of nowhere, out of nowhere, with nobody there, utterly abandoned, he says, even by the Father, in this moment, in a unique way, he's all alone, never been more alone. And out of, out of this, nowhere could you be expecting, but the thief goes around and he makes a confession and he says, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now, where did that come from? And I'm, I'm telling you, if I'm, if I'm Jesus, it must have just touched his heart. It must, it must have maybe, maybe, because he was not just the son of God, you guys. He was the son of man. That is, he was a human being. And maybe for just that moment, as, even as the blood was dripping down, there was something of water in his eyes as he looked and heard that statement being made when everybody else had turned, with the exception of a few. Here was one, an unexpected one, with nothing, with not, a nobody, taking and making a statement. He is an innocent man. It was beautiful. It was an unlikely confession. It was a, a, a stunning development. And then following that right up, maybe there was some space, maybe there wasn't. We don't know. But he decides to do something that it, it, it almost, it almost, you can't explain it because logically it made no sense, but he turns to him, and I think it was connected to the sign that he saw where it said the, the king of the Jews and everybody was talking about him claiming to be Messiah, the king, the coming king, and, and he turns and he says to them, and you can see the verse yourself, and he says, then he said to Jesus, he said to him, Lord, will you, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, nobody has a kingdom but a king. Nobody has a kingdom but a king. And it was an amazing declaration of faith 
Because he says, will you remember me? When you come, I believe, I believe. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Now, I, I, that is, it's a beautiful moment because Jesus then, he doesn't turn around and say, I'm sorry. You had your chance. You know. He doesn't say, you know, now you want to ask me this, but you were, you were really going at me before. You know, there's... there's no, I, I, I jest somewhat there, obviously, but the, the, there was a tenderness to his response. Again, I think, I think Jesus' heart is, is, is broken. He, he is breaking for all of us, but it's breaking for this man, too, because his, his, he, he says to him, I tell you of a truth, and th- there was a majesty and a dignity in it, just like when he said the same words that had shaken Pilate to the core, you know, when he was talking to him. And it, it really, he, Jesus could say things that, that got right into the heart of a person and exposed them. And he turned to him, and I would imagine, again, I imagine him looking after he says, well, I, in my mind's eye, that's all it is. I, when, when Jesus first hears him say, this man has done nothing, he's innocent, I imagine in the context of all that betrayal, Jesus looking at him. And... Then he follows that up with, when you, Lord, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me? He didn't look like a king. There was nothing victorious about this moment. But his heart had opened up, cast logic aside, and love called him in. So it is with us. Now, the Bible says, now listen, he couldn't get off that cross. His hands were nailed. The guy was dying. He hadn't, there was not going to be a, an opportunity to, to use these hands and these feet to do anything. But he had one thing he could do. He had his mouth and he had his words. And he confessed, he confessed with it. There's a great chapter in the Bible, the 10th chapter of Romans, in which if you really ever want to explore what, what it means to be saved in Christ Jesus, Romans 10. But there's a part of Romans 10 where it says this, Romans 10, 10, easy to remember. It says, with the heart one believes unto righteousness in God's eyes. Heart one believes what is right in God's eyes. And with a mouth, confession is made unto salvation. The verse before that talks about how if we believe in our heart and confess Jesus and believe in our heart, if we confess him as Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. the, the humility, the, the boldness of this prayer, the saving prayer can be as simple as, as, as just saying, will you accept me, Jesus? Will you remember me? Will you have me? And Jesus says, truly, assuredly, I say to you that this day, look at that, this day, and then he uses the language for heaven that they would use, paradise. He says, I tell you of a truth that this day, this day you will be with me. In the heavenly place, you will be with me in paradise. I say it to you, as true as as night follows day. Powerful. What's there for us? Let me stick this on the board. Just consider it. Let me suggest that there is, firstly here, you guys, just stay with it. There is a fear (laughs) that we all should have. And that's what I'm calling a healthy fear of God. It's the fear that that the, the... the, the repentant thief said, asked his, his friend, 
Don't you fear God? That fear. He was saying, don't you, have you no reverence for him? Have you no respect for him? I want to suggest that it, he, he meant, don't, don't, don't you have any consideration for your future and who God is? The Bible tells us in Hebrews 9.27 that it's appointed unto a, a person, a, a man or a woman, once to die after that, the judgment. Basically, we will all give account in this life. That is why Jesus consistently reminds us to, to challenge um, our value system. Uh, he taught us that whenever we begin with the end in mind, it, it tends to inform our present. Hear me out, you guys, young or old. Whenever we think about the end, he says it can inform the present. And, and sometimes it, reor- it causes us to reorder our present because we're thinking about what is yet to be, according to Jesus. That is why Jesus said, listen to me, he said, you seek first the kingdom of God. And all these other things in life will slot themselves into place. They'll, they'll go where they're supposed to go. They'll be added unto you. But seek first the kingdom. Jesus said, what if it profits a person to gain the whole world, but they lose their own soul? Jesus said, do not fear the one. Interestingly enough, he modeled it and lived it and did it. Do not fear the one who can kill the body, he says, but rather fear the one who can kill the soul. Powerful truth. Powerful truth. A healthy fear of God, and I mean a healthy fear, not a, not a, a, a dysfunctional fear, a terrorizing fear, but a healthy fear for God. Listen, you know what it will do for us? And Listen to me. It will cause us to be better people who live better lives, who love better, who keep our commitments better, who will be more honest than we would have been if we did not have that in our lives. Because we realize we're not just living for ourselves. We live with, with the eye that God, God is near. And it matters to us what he thinks. Secondly, though, I would just flip that around a bit. Let me just point out this just quickly here, that we should never allow fear. And now I'm talking about a different kind of fear. We should never allow our fears to keep us from turning to Christ. Now just... Think about this for a moment. The thief on the cross, go back there for a moment. There were so many reasons for him to, to not go for it. I mean, one thing he could have said, you know, he could have said, you know, there was the fear of peer pressure. Some of us back off from Jesus because of what other people will think. And in this moment, everybody was going against Jesus. His friends were going against Jesus. His friend was, everybody else was. They were, gonna, they were all laughing at him. He looked like nothing and nobody, pathetic. And for him, why would I risk it? Why would I risk being laughed at myself? They're going to hear me. But he did it anyway. Nothing to lose. Sometimes we, we, it's the fear of, it could be the fear of our own unworthiness. Maybe even if I feel like he might be somebody, I'm nobody. I've been a bad man. I've been someone I'm not proud to say it. I've been a criminal all my life. I'm worthy of what I'm paying my price for. I, he's good. I'm not. I'm not even going to bother with that. Think about it. Sometimes our own sense of, some of us may feel because of things that we've done or are doing, we're really not worthy of God. I want to say that we're probably never worthy of his love, but we're never forbidden from asking him for it, and he delights to give it. And in this moment, he, he takes his risk. There was all, that was one fear. fear I'm, I'll be re- the, the other fear was, I'm just going to be rejected. What if he rejects me? What if he says no? I'm, I'm, uh, I mean, I, if I risk asking, I could be risk being told no. I'm not going to do it. 
Sometimes people don't make, they don't want to be, they don't want to take the chance, so I'm not going to do it. What if it doesn't work? I'm not going to bother with that. I can't take a chance. I'm going to tell you, don't let our, our fears keep us from turning to Jesus. Don't ever do that. Why? Here's the thing. Just remember this. Number three, there is, I'll put it this way. It may hit, hit us a little bit different. Hear me out, though. There is a thief in all of us. There's a thief inside all of us. What do you mean? I don't mean that necessarily that, that we're, we're, we, there's, we're all stealing things. I'm not saying that. Uh, what, what I'm saying is there's a part of us that is prone to wander away from God, always, even the best of us, and no one knows, only God. But all of us have that contradiction in us, even in our best intentions. The right buttons are pushed. Stuff comes out of us. We, we act out things. We react. We, we say things. We should say things that we don't say because we have attitudes in our heart of unforgiveness, resentment, um, small-mindedness, selfishness, stubbornness, pride. We can run down the list. We can easily fall back into dis- destructive patterns. Like, like David said, um, you know, if I, my sin is ever before me, Lord. Um, if you were to count my sins, who could stand before you? Or like the great prophet Isaiah said in 53, he said, oh, Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all, that there is a stubbornness at some level, a part of us, is, there's a part of me that is, is prone to move away from God, and he will always be there. And, and that, when I understand that, it, it strips me of my pride. And it reminds us, no matter how far along in this Christian life we get, we must always suspect our own righteousness and take into account our own weakness. Remember that. I think that delivers us from judgmentalism and causes us to focus on our own need for grace as much as anything. To pursue a high ideal, yes, but to be, but to be someone who does it with a sensitivity and a love, and this is the last piece here, what we're told of is this, that not only, I think, is there something about the Lord that is, is maybe, how can I put it, his heart is inclined to grace, and, and if he will always be touched by a humble, honest expression of faith on our part, even when we don't get it right. And I love that because I, I, I listen to the gentle response of Jesus to this thief. Think about it. He's having this conversation with this man. He is in the process of saving the world, but he pulls away for the one who nobody was going to remember. When he says, remember me, you know what? Nobody was going to remember him. He, it, not only was he a, a, a bad guy, but he had been, in, in the Jewish culture, to die on a cross, to die on a tree, was to, because of the law, it, was, it carried a special stigma. So on top of everything else, he has this idea that nobody was going to be remembering him. That's my point. Nobody was going to remember him. And yet he says to Jesus, will you remember me? And it's that beautiful... I don't know, the tenderness of the Lord that, that just steps right out. It's like, the, like the, the, the broken man breaks Jesus. And he says to him, absolutely, I will. Because he doesn't turn us away. That's what I'm trying to say. Say he never turns us away when we come humble to him. It's not about how good we are. The irony was this man made his way into the kingdom he was a long shot. But grace called him in. 
just like it calls you and me in. And please, we are prone to wander, but remember this. We can never outrun God's grace. He pursues us. He loves us. I can't, look, that man, he was done. He couldn't, he could never, he could never get up, he was never gonna be able to live out anything resembling faith. There's only one example of this in all the Bible. As the old Puritans used to say, there's one so that we may not presume, there's one so that we may not despair, right? It was their way of saying, it's, it's, it's atypical, not common, but still very real. You and I are not been hammered to a cross. We're not dying in this moment. We have a life to live still. I don't know the duration of it, but we have the use of our hands, and we have the use of our feet, and we have the use of our mouth, and we have the use, at least for a while, of our bodies. May we honor the Lord in them, and may we live in his grace through them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you who are the friend of sinners and love people where they are and call us to places of growth and expansion, life and possibility, work your purposes in our lives, Lord. I pray that we would continue to be a people who are on the grow, that there is an aspect of what you're doing in our lives that reminds us of how beautiful your grace is. For even in your brokenness, you had time for the one. Even now, you have time for us. You know our heart. Um, I pray that you fill us with courage to overtake our fears, to trust you all the days of our lives. I pray for your blessing, Lord, as we, as we move into the rest of our week, but I pray for this time as well that we're closing with over this song, which, which is kind of like a, a benediction, a word of grace for us, and also, of course, over our time of giving as we are people honor you in it. May you just be close to us. We love you. We're grateful. We ask for your blessing, and I pray for the blessing of all who are here, spirit, soul, and body. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.